As always, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate are specialists in buying, selling, and managing property in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.de or next-estate.com. I've got a colleague here, Michael Horn, who um, has a, a deep background in education and then was foolish enough to come to Harvard Business School to get an MBA and was in my class, and I suckered him into taking a vow of poverty to stay with me and, and help me think through these things and <clears throat> try to write a book about it that is called Disrupting Class. Um, I know very little about education, but I... I have spent my academic life studying the problems of innovation. And whereas a lot of research on reforming and improving our schools um, is organized around let's study education to reach conclusions about education, what I've tried to do is say, no, I've just been studying innovation in the context of government and not-for-profits and for-profits. And so let me stand on the outside of the education industry and examine these problems and opportunities through the lenses of my general research. Disrupting class. It's quite a disturbing title for a book about the schooling process. The title conveys multiple meanings. The principal meaning is that disruption can usefully frame why schools have struggled to improve and how to solve these problems. Welcome to another episode in this tribute to the work life and theories of the late Clayton Christensen. Our goal with this series is to make sure his work lives well beyond all of us into the future and can benefit people to offer them new lenses through which to see problems and to discover solutions. Our guest today has become a friend through our geek outs over this show in the past. We've covered his books like Reopen to Reinvent, his latest book. And Clayton Christensen said this about the man. He is one of the best of thousands of brilliant students I have had the pleasure to have in my classes in the Harvard Business School. He has contributed his expertise in writing and government policy to this project, this book, in a humble, articulate, and rigorous way. I can say he is the same behind the scenes, behind the camera, very humble, very rigorous with his approach to even anything like this podcast. And he has been a linchpin in putting together this tribute series. And I'm incredibly grateful to the co-author of Disrupting Class, Michael B. Horn. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's so good to see you. It's good to be with you. I always, whenever you uh, say that tribute from Clay, I always think, well, he was the nicest person in the world. So of course he would write something like that. Who knows if it's true or not, but uh, it's just a delight to be able to talk about his ideas that are so powerful and have been helpful to so many. Let's talk about him first, because we, we've, had a, we've talked about him before on the show, but as part of this series, I thought it would be meaningful for you to, to share the impact he had on your life, because little did you know when you sat into that class where it would go in the future and how that you're still entrenched in this work, doing better by society through improving education all over the globe. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I had no idea if I'm being honest, right, who Clay Christensen even was when I signed up for the class. I had heard that the material was transformational. Uh, some people said, well, just read the books. And I thought, well, 
better to get it from the man himself. Uh, and gosh, I'm glad I did because certainly the theories changed how I see everything in the world. It's just the prism through which I think about my personal life, my marriage, my, you know, obviously education, uh, business success, uh, but even the rise and fall of nation states, right? I, I, I think through this prism and, and, and set of theories uh, about the causes of success and decline. But even more, Clay became this figure of just, you know, the six foot eight humble giant, right? Just an incredible intellect, but an even more incredible generosity and caring about him. Uh, where, you know, he cared about your personal life. He cared about how you were succeeding, uh, if your balance was right and, and all those things. And, and if you were living right by the world and, and he cared about each interaction with each individual so much so that I think after everyone left, not only did he have a fountain of ideas he was playing with, but he was also probably, uh, just really invested and exhausted, I think, frankly, from the interaction because he cared so much about each person that walked into that door of his office. Beautiful. And, and it echoes so much what every guest in this series had said about the man, which is just incredible. All good stuff. And if anything, the only thing you said before was Clay with that. In his mind, he had this idea of his final interview with God. And you were like, Clay, I think you're good, buddy. <laughs> I think you're good. <laughs> yeah, he spent, I mean, he spent so much time worrying about this, right? About how he would be judged, because obviously it's a central tenet of the religion uh, that he practiced. And I, yeah, exactly. He would say, you know, have I, have I done right by each individual? And I was like, Clay, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. I, I, there's many other things to worry about in the world. That's not one of them. I was laughing about that. I was thinking to myself, you know, it's there's there's a queue at the gates of heaven and St. Peter's like, he can see him miles away because he's six foot eight. And he's like, Christensen, you're good. You're good. Come to the front. <laughs> Top of the yeah. queue, buddy. Get in there. Yeah. VIP status, yeah. the velvet rope. So let's get into the content of the book because I love what you've done with this book because previously, and you've built on this work, previously, most books on the education system and educational reform were very academic in nature. They, they were starting incrementally. They were starting from the point of education, which doesn't widen your lens enough to be able to see things differently. And what you did, and this is beautiful serendipity for you, through sitting through those classes and learning those lenses and being able to apply them, you look through the lenses of disruption and disruptive innovation theory in order to dismantle and recalibrate and reinvigorate the education system. So maybe we'll start with a helicopter view of the books. Why? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's exactly what you said. Most people write education books and they study the education systems that are here and there from the inside, right? They, they do studies, they do RCTs, whatever it is to draw conclusions about how the way it works. And our sense was that uh, it was somewhat limiting because it didn't help people progress past that current state of mind. And so that if we came from exactly, as you said, outside the system in an orthogonal approach and took these lenses of innovation and basically said what our schools suffer from is a problem of innovation, of how to make the learning experiences intrinsically motivating to students so that they want to be there and that schools can accomplish their goals as well. How would we help them make progress? How would we help them see different ways to structure, set up different opportunities and the like? 
And so we sort of went one by one through the canon, if you will, and said, does this theory have something to say? Does it sh shed some insight? And, and none of them by themselves give, quote unquote, the answer or the foolproof formula, but just a little bit of insight, a little bit from a different direction, some validation maybe for other people's insights and a way to move forward from that to say, okay, well, if, if you agree with this, then here's what you do. Uh, to actually innovate and create a more robust set of learning opportunities and experiences for students. And, and it's just as you said, uh, take those theories from the outside to shed insight on what uh, people might do differently. One of the things that occur, occurred to me, because we've covered, you and I have covered in a two-part series before Disrupting Class, but I didn't have the benefit of this series and reading in the sequence that I've read, including all the papers here and there to make sure that I had a robust lens myself through which to see it. And, and I had a totally different experience, which just shows you the value of lenses. And I wanted to say that because one of the things I went right back to was Joe Bauer's resource allocation theories and how there's a attribution bias when an organization, for example, goes, who's the idea coming from? And the same thing goes for researchers in the educational field. It's like, oh, well, who's it coming from? And the reason I say that is theory inoculates that value attribution bias. It means that it's not Michael Horn's opinion. It's the theory's opinion. What, and I say that because of the term you use there. What does the theory have to say about it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And Clay would always say that too, frankly, when people would come into his office to ask for advice or CEOs would say, what should I do? And he'd say, I don't have an opinion, but let's see what the theory has to say about that. And he would go and pick the theory that he thought might be most useful, and then he would do another one and so forth. And oftentimes it was him just saying, let me just tell you what the theory says. You know way more about schools, your business, whatever it is. Now that you understand the causal mechanism here, whether it's resource allocation process in an organization uh, or jobs to be done or whatever it is, what can you see that maybe you couldn't see before from inside? And invariably, the theory would give people a language and a new way of looking at the problem that would unlock a solution that maybe they hadn't considered before. Or to your point, maybe they had dismissed because, oh, it came from that constituency or, you know, oh, that guy that I don't really like working with inside the company came up with a similar idea. But now it was the theory's opinion. It wasn't that of an individual or in schools. I think what's important is it's not the opinion of someone from the right or the left or the middle of the political spectrum. It's just theory coming in and saying, this is what we see, you know, now what do we get to do with it? Building on that, one of the things that I benefited from this time was, for example, our recent episode with Ron Adner and the asymmetry of motiv motivation that we discussed. And I say that because oftentimes people will kind of go, oh, the schools are to blame, the systems to blame, the students are to blame because they're not motivated. And one of the ways you open the book also echoes what happens in innovation. The idea of the burning platform, for example, is, oh, we better innovate because we're being eaten, our lunch is being eaten by a competitor or a startup, or the whole idea of, we had a great guest on the show before, Michael, a guy called Mika Zenko, and he'd written a book called Red Teams, and he, he said this great thing, he said, the best way for a building to implement, say, for example, safety structures or fire regulation in their building is to burn down the building next door. Because <laughs> now, now they're going to act because they can see a reason. 
And you talk about that right up the start of the book. For example, you talked about, well, there was a whole push to to reinvent and reform education after the space race and the idea that America lost the space race to Russia. And then you also talk about, which I thought was really important, extrinsic and intrinsic motivation in Japan. And I thought this would be a nice way to set us up for the lenses that we'll talk about later when they were also losing competitive advantage. And it was there was a job to be done by the education system. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so essentially what had happened was that the rise of Japan was actually itself fueled by disruptive innovation, right? Sony, Toyota, uh, uh, Canon, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Fuji um, had come up from the bottom of the market and driven prosperity and started to disrupt all the American companies, uh, Xerox, uh, RCA, and Zenith, uh, the American automakers, et cetera, et cetera, right? And started to eat their lunch. And as a result, America had this extrinsic shock. Holy cow, Japan's coming for us. They might be the largest economy at some point. We need to kick it into high gear and start to compete with these guys. And one of the things that they saw was that Japan was graduating way more scientists and technologists and, and mathematicians as a percentage, if you will, uh, of obviously a smaller uh, population, but but as a percentage, it was quite robust. And uh, America said, oh my gosh, we need to do the same thing. We need to make our learning more rigorous. We need to go chase those hard subjects uh, and tackle those individuals. But the problem America fundamentally faced was that we're sort of fat and lazy, if you will, right? We, we have prosperity. It, things are okay. And there isn't the same extrinsic motivation that Japan had at the time, which was to escape the poverty and the ashes of rebuilding from the Second World War. And uh, so our, our assertion was, well, if America, you want to truly go do that, then you have to find a way to make the learning in these subjects intrinsically motivating so that students are banging down your doors to learn science or engineering because it's such an exciting area, not because they think, oh, gee, I have to do this. And, and there's this great quote right from John Adams, the, the second president of the United States, where he, he writes this letter to his wife, Abigail, and he says, you know, I must study, and I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but he, he basically says, I must study military maneuvers and, and, and things of that and, and politics and things of that nature uh, so that my children have the freedom to study science and, and, and agriculture and things of that nature. And they must do those things so that their children will have the freedom to study the arts and music. And I think he says porcelain and stuff like that. And uh, there's this sense that, you know, as we get wealthier, we get to sort of tackle the things we love to do. Well, let's make engineering and science, how we teach it, something that people love to do. When a disruptive innovation comes along, the one thing I've learned from Clay's work is that you can't just incrementally change. You need to change the entire system. So you, we'll talk about this in a little while. You can't cram it into the existing architecture. And one thing we talked about in the first episode of this series, and it was thanks to you, by the way, you introduced me to Matt Christensen, and he flew over here to Dublin, as you know, and we did that episode. But he talked briefly about the theory of interdependence and modularity, and we didn't go that deep into it. But now that we've gone through these episodes, and people will have followed us, it will probably make more sense now that you can't just cram into an existing paradigm, 
you need to change many, many parts of that. And this is very much the case when it comes to education. Yeah, and and we can attack it from a couple ways. I mean, I actually think one of the mistakes we made in the book uh, is thinking that the disruption of classes uh, would somehow change the overall school system. And to be clear, we have the sentences in there warning why that won't happen. <laughs> but I think we had this optimism, right? But really, what we are doing is disrupting a system within a system. And that overarching system is still... Uh, at least at this point, you know, we have digital learning everywhere, <laughs> right? Our prediction was was largely correct, I think, on that. But it's still operating based on the rules of the existing system that have imposed on it. Um, and so it's interesting, right? You you still, I'll, I'll get into that more in a moment, I guess. But just backing up a little bit, basically, the theory of interdependence and modularity says that in the early years of a novel innovation that the ways, the components of that system or that structure or that innovation operate, they're not well known. We don't know how the logic circuitry affects the uh, operating system, affects the core memory in a mainframe computer in 1950. We just, we, we, you know, if we make a change here, what does it do to over here? And so the interfaces as a result between those parts cannot be well-defined. And the consequence of that is to make a successful mainframe computer, if you try to do it with a bunch of arm's length handoffs, different suppliers, it's going to underperform what the market needs from it at that time. And as a result of that, you need a proprietary structure where one organization, in effect, wraps their hands around all of those subsystems and says, we're going to build every single one of them. We're going to make sure that we build the logic circuitry, the core memory, the operating system. We're also going to integrate that, frankly, with the sales distribution and with uh, the after-sales market and the marketing and on and on. We're going to do everything. Because if we don't, it will underperform what the market needs. And, and that's what IBM did, and that's why they were successful. Frankly, that's what Apple did right in the early personal computer, and that's why they were successful. But there's a trade-off there. And what the theory of interdependence and modularity says is that just like disruptive innovations, right, the technology gets better and better and better, and it starts to overperform uh, what a, a large set of customers need from it. And they become unwilling to pay for those performance improvements. And what they really want is a more customized system. That's affordable. They want to be able to say, I want to mix and match, you know, the monitor, the the disk drive, the the uh, RAM, the hard drive memory, et cetera, et cetera. And to do that, you need a modular architecture, meaning that we now are able to specify how these different parts and components fit together at their interfaces and make them verifiable and specifiable and predictable. And doing so allows me to take a light bulb, right? You see it over here, uh, and just plug it in to the socket. And I, I can be all have all sorts of weird forms of light bulbs, but as long as it meets the interface, and that interface connects into the uh, in, in, into the wires, right? That that um, have have the uh, electrical charge there and complete the circuit. That this is that this will work, and uh, as a result modularity creates affordable customization. Dell personal computers is the obvious sort of counterexample to Apple, but you know, even in the uh, mobile phone uh, world, smartphones, you know, BlackBerry is the full integrated offering. iPhone is a little less so. 
And then Android system is completely open and custom, right? And so forth. So affordable customization. And it's not that one is better than the other. They're just trade-offs inherent in it. And you know, the big observation we made was that our education system, I would argue, had become interdependent on the wrong things <laughs> uh, in terms of, oh, you can't you know, you have to sit in this seat for this number of days and you can't take this class until you've done so, as opposed to looking at the learning and making it modular of, oh, gee, Aiden, you've already, you know, you already understood this. So we'll just swap in this component here and you can keep on going on your learning journey. Or, gee, you need a different explanation and more time on this, on this particular concept. And so we'll pull in this other source over here, right? You know, Khan Academy or whatever else and have a more modular architecture. And, and our big observation was people learn at different rates. They have different pathways. Different things make sense to them based on their background knowledge and experiences. And so if the goal is to optimize each and every child's learning, uh, which until recently it hadn't been, but if that is the now the goal, then you need modularity uh, along the learning path to be able to customize and meet those differences. And, and just the way of one teacher delivering the content at a set time on a set day uh, is intricately interdependent along the time dimension, but it's the wrong dimension uh, to unleash learning. Now, I would argue subsequent to the book, uh, we've said other things actually probably need to be interdependent. Like when we think about growth mindset, which you think a lot about, right? Or perseverance and grid and things of that nature. For a lot of kids, those probably need to be interdependently delivered with the academic learning so that you develop those skills and mindsets and so forth um, and trying to do them at arm's length or assume that you know, you're getting it from sports or something like that. Some kids, sure, but a lot of kids were sort of leaving it to chance and, and, and they're not getting those skills that they need. So understanding interdependence and modularity, I think in each facet you think about of redesigning a system or disrupting a system, uh, turns out to be pretty important because it's never the case that a system, let me say it this way, it's almost never the case <laughs> that a system is all one or the other. It's really on a continuum uh, generally um, of different parts being more interdependent and different parts being more modular at any given point. We usually don't get that far in the book. We run out of talking about the other stuff. So I'm actually starting towards the end of the book here because these are parts that aren't usually discussed. You, you don't usually get this opportunity. So I'm going to jump to chapter nine, which is the last chapter about organizing to innovate. So this is about the types of teams and types of structure you need. And this speaks a lot to the work of Kim C. Clark, the former dean of Harvard. And he was he was Clay's he was Clay, Clayton Christensen was known as the Kim C. Clark professor in Harvard as well. So there's a huge T here, a huge tie here, but also the work is incredible about the structures, how you need to structure both an organization, but also teams within an organization in order to innovate. And the reason I'm saying that is I'm building, excuse the pun, on your idea of interdependence and modularity, because I was thinking about how this happens in organizations all the time, that if, if you recalibrate a product and you need to get rid of some parts, so some parts need to, to fall out, new parts need to come in, it, it almost mirrors what happens in an organization, because if I need to reconfigure an organization, some people and their skill sets are no longer necessary, and I need new skill sets into the organization. And that human resistance often means people don't do it. 
So we need to go a little bit above that to somebody who has almost omnipotence to be able to make decisions that are best for the organization. This is really difficult stuff, but you do cover this also in the book. Maybe you'll share your thoughts on that at a high level and then what it means to the education system and educational reform. Yeah, you bet. I mean, I think the, you know, the big insight, right, is exactly what you said, which is that de depending on the type of problem you're grappling with, you need a different kind of team. So if it's a problem that has no interdependencies with other parts of the system, meaning that we're just going to improve the social studies lessons in our class or the way we teach math. And it, it has literally, it, it's, it's contained, it's in a 45 minute period, it has no impact on the rest of the schedule. Well, we can use a functional team, right, to make those sorts of improvements. But the moment we start to rethink how that component interacts with other parts of the system, then in effect, and, and Kim's Clark, uh, Kim, Kim's, uh, uh, basically his taxonomy goes up from there to a lightweight team and then to a heavyweight team when you're truly rethinking the entire system. Y you, in essence, need different kinds of teams that have different permissions to pull in people from different parts of the organizations to rethink either how these parts interact with each other or to rethink the parts entirely. And that's the heavyweight team part where we say, actually, you know, we don't want classes the way we've typically had them. We want uh, maybe interdisciplinary project-based learning experiences that does away with modular classes and instead teaches uh, the humanities, social studies, and English uh, together in a joint structure making this up that's one way to do it right uh but the big idea being that you can uh use the teams to get the right level of change you need and and the reality is if you try to make a system level change from within functional teams from within your department from within your social studies class from within your grade level whatever it might be then this is where uh, people complain about silos and bureaucracy getting in the way because you're not you're literally not allowed right to interact with other parts of the inter of of the system and the the flip side is also true if you try to make that simple little change in your social studies class to one little lesson and you don't want to change anything else, but you have to go through committees and all these things of rethinking the entire structure. You're like, oh my God, you've just created this morass of work for myself. I'm just trying to change a word in the lesson or whatever it is. And uh, you've created too much structure. And so you really need the right kind of team to match the right kind of change that you're trying to put in place. And, and that's what this theory that Kim... Uh, help develop uh, is all about. And it's something that, uh, frankly, I, I use heavily in the education work. It, it appeared in Blended. It appears uh, in my class at Harvard. Uh, it's something that I think a lot about uh, right now is making sure that we have the right people at the, at the table with the right uh, abilities and permissions to make the change in a system. If only Kim Clark would be part of this series. Then you know it would be magical. There <laughs> He's you go. coming down the line. Just there got you go. The, we just got the confirmation there. So it's going to be so good to cover you're that in for You're in for a total treat. Kim was the dean when I got into Harvard Business School. And I just remember his opening address and just thinking, wow, <laughs> like the the graciousness and wisdom that that man personifies is just is off the charts. 
Wonderful. Well, he obviously rubbed off on Clay then as well, and then onto all you guys who have been part of this series as well. I, I found that in, I've said this before: intellectual humility, personal humility, and just nice people. And and it's been a really nice aspect of doing this series as well. And and it's common actually. A lot of people might be surprised. I don't know. But with the Innovation Show, I've been so lucky with some brilliant guests along the way. Let's get back into the content because I wanted to that now go, okay, we, we, we started right at the back. But I thought these were important because this is one of the problems, I think, Michael, is people will often write into me and email me and stuff like that and kind of go, can you do a shorter version? And you're kind of going, you, you, there is no short version with this. you got to do the work in order to get the lens. And, and I actually thought this about both your work that you're continuing to do, but also all the books that Clay wrote, it was like, I want to get it out of my head and democratize it so everybody can use it. So you don't have to rely heavily on consultancies. And there, I have nothing against consultancies. I am a consultant, but you don't want to rely on them. You want to learn what they have to offer, the theories they have, so you can start to put it into practice because it's only through putting it into practice that you can actually make the change. Yeah. And I had this dream when we wrote Disrupting Class that we would make it so foolproof that schools wouldn't need to hire consultancies to make the changes. It, it turns out that it's not been that simple, that I think consultancies are incredibly useful. But I still think it's the case that it's important to teach the people themselves who are going to be ultimately implementing the change how to think in these novel ways so that they understand the why first and foremost, to the changes you're asking them to make. And if they don't understand that why, I think it's very easy for them to slip back into old habits or dismiss or take the recommendations and say, well, sounds great, and you know, but it, it's not something we're going to do. And so I think teaching people how to think was such a central uh, focus of Clay's, not what to think or what to do, but how to think, and then trust that people can make really smart decisions once they understand that causal mechanisms at work. There is no shortcut on this. I, I, I keep saying this to people as well in, in my work is that that's one of the goals I want to do here is, is, is help you do it. And that's why I repeat some of the themes the whole time. And, and I feel actually reading Clay's body of work with his co-authors, you actually you get a repeat of the lens in a different way. And that's the beauty of doing it this way. So one of those lenses that's core to this book is the the theory of disruptive innovation. And what I thought we'd do at a very high level is I'll share on the screen the chart, figure two, one from the book from chapter two. And then we can actually speak to that and then kind of go, well, what does it mean to the education system? Because that'll be a nice foundational part from how we go forward from here. Yeah. So look, this this is the model of disruptive innovation. When we think about disruptive innovation, this is typically what we're seeing in our heads, which is to say that in the back plane, and sometimes people get confused on the three-dimensional nature of it, but sort of that back plane where the incumbents nearly always win label sits is where the initial innovations uh, in, in, a, in a sector get their start. And they start as not good enough for the majority of users. Um, and that's represented by the performance that customers can utilize or absorb. And over time, sustaining innovations are those that sustain that line of improvement. They help make it, uh, you know, televisions get uh, crisper and bigger and things of that nature. Uh, airplanes fly farther. You get the ideas, right? And the really important thing is that these innovations are designed to help the most demanding users in a field get what they need done 
uh, in the ways that it's set up to do it. And occasionally out in this third plane, right, or this this front plane, if you will, uh, these new innovations appear powered by some technology enabler that appear primitive compared to the traditional system. And when that occurs, uh, the mainstream users and the companies that make them, the organizations that make them, tend to dismiss them. They say they're not nearly as good as fill in the blank. Uh, but they too improve. And it's not that they get better based on the traditional measures of performance, but they get good enough to solve the problems you formerly had to do in those original uh, spheres of, of or planes of competition. And one by one, people start to migrate out to the disruption because they're delighted by something that is good enough and is also bringing forth a new value proposition around affordability, convenience, accessibility, simplicity, and the like. And so that's the real, uh, that, that's how transformation occurs. And that's why disruption is so powerful. It, it disrupts that trajectory of improvement. And then there's the volume collapse uh, from the old way of doing things into the new as it's good enough, not better, but good enough for what you're trying to do and brings forth all these new value propositions. It's a lovely way to actually bring together a few different terms and then we can also apply them to education. So one of the things that's on the screen there that people would have seen is the term non-consumption. We've talked about it before on this series. It's absolutely core to understand non-consumption because of what you said there, good enough. It's good enough for a totally different body of people, a different cohort, a different customer that the incumbent doesn't even see because, well, as Michael Rayner said to us, I'll give you 12 red roses to take that customer off my hands because they're not worth anything to me. In fact, they're a hindrance. So because of that, the incumbent ignores them, but therefore offers them to a, a startup or a new competitor on a plate and takes their eye off the ball, comes back, and all of a sudden they've built up new competencies, new capabilities. One of the problems you tell us is non-consumption is a difficulty in the educational system because education is pretty much widespread, so it creates a bit of a dilemma. Maybe you'll take us through that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, in the contexts of you know Ireland or the UK or, or, or uh, America, schooling is compulsory. You're required to go to school. Uh, there's largely um, basically universal 100% access to schools that feel free. They, they are not in fact free, but they feel free, right, to the average individual. And so as a consequence of that, there's not a natural place of non-consumption within schools. And so a key reason we call this book Disrupting Class instead of Disrupting Schools is at least in the context of the Western world, we didn't see those areas where you could actually disrupt schools. Hence what I said earlier, it was a disruption within a system, not of the system itself, which has some limitations to be totally clear. And uh, we had to find where the non-consumption was. And so what we did was we looked for non-consuming contexts. And this is an important part of the theory. And it's, it's where... I think you can sometimes get things wrong is that if you look at, say, the disruption uh, of uh, that smartphones drove people, you know, Clay famously said, right, well, like Nokia is going to beat the pants off of Apple when they come in with the iPhone. Uh, but what I think they didn't realize was, in fact, the smartphones were disruptive relative to laptops and personal computers, right? They were basically computers in your pockets. And it wasn't that customers that were buying them didn't have computers at home. 
they they did, but they didn't have computers on in in the car. They didn't have a computer on the road. They didn't have a computer in the middle of a meeting. They didn't have a computer when they were commuting on on the subway or whatnot. And so, it's these non-consumption contexts that are really important to find. And in schools, there's all sorts of classes that schools would love to be able to offer, uh, but don't have the ability to do so for any number of reasons. Where uh, those are classic areas of non-consumption, or a student uh, fails a course and has no recourse to make it up. That's another area of non-consumption, if you will. And so these non-consumption opportunities, these contexts are critical to spot, to try to find out how to, uh, if you really want to introduce disruptive innovations organically uh, in, into a system. Now, I'll add one other thing, just because I think it's interesting, and it relates, we're recording this at the beginning of February. Uh, literally next week, I'll be in Sierra Leone and, and Liberia, where in many cases, kids there don't have access to any schools. And so therefore, the picture there looks very different for what disruptive innovation can do. And I suspect in the longer run, that's where we'll see the real leapfrog innovations come in education that cause us to rethink the structure of schools entirely, because they have a much more blank slate. They don't have that install base that is sort of limiting their choices. Where we're we're over here, we're sort of fishing for those areas of non-consumption to find a place where a disruptive innovation can uh, get it started in the mainstream system. And last thought, at the same token, in a way that we didn't understand when we wrote the book, because Khan Academy wasn't there yet, <laughs> like things like Khan Academy, right? Teach people to learn all sorts of things outside of schools entirely. And that's the other exciting part about that is all the learning that is occurring outside of schools. It's not changing how schools operate, but it is unleashing a heck of a lot of learning and growth for a lot of individuals, which is incredibly exciting. I mean, that's how you know a teenager wants to learn something today. They don't go to their textbook or their teacher. They go to Khan Academy or YouTube uh, or TikTok to find a lesson, right? And so it's totally changed actually how learning has occurred. We just don't recognize it yet in the formal system. Uh, well, that's what this is. I mean, doing this show, if, if you were taking a course in Harvard and you listen to this show as a compliment, you'll get a gem that no other student's getting. And it'll get you, it'll be the difference between a, a B and an A, for example. That I, I, I tend to see it that way. And it's so complimentary. And it could be a better way for you to learn, which, you know, you talk about in the book about Howard Gardner's work as well. We won't go there because <laughs> I'm in interest of time. But um, I wanted to tie it to a, a quote you said. There was a couple of things you said there that, that will send me in every which way direction. But one of the ones was you said about going to Sierra Leone and how really what you're, you're saying there is that they have a different job to be done than you do in the US or here in Europe. Different jobs to be done because the system is already pretty mature. And that, that can offer advantages, but also disadvantages because it's not a blank slate as well. So we will talk about jobs to be done in a moment. And But I wanted to quote something here because it links back to Matt as well when we talked about in episode one. He was talking about non-consumption and how ignoring non-consumers can open up a business to disruption. But in the book, you say disruptive innovation requires targeting not those courses that public schools want to teach in-house. They must instead focus on courses that the public schools would be relieved not to teach, but do feel they need to offer. 
If officials target online courses at the core curriculum, however, it will elicit intense op opposition by the teachers' unions. I thought that was a really, really important line because that's exactly what happens in business disruption. Yeah, and it's exactly what happens right here as well. You get the, oh, you're trying to replace our jobs. You're trying to replace teachers sort of rhetoric and pushback. When in fact, I mean, interestingly enough, digital learning as a result gets implemented as a sustaining innovation in those core areas, right? To incrementally improve, as you said, we can get you from the B to the A, um, but we're not going to fundamentally transform the way teaching and learning itself occurs. And, th and that's been, you know, the, the challenge, I think, frankly, is that all innovators um, in the education system and the foundations and so forth they want to solve the core problems. They don't want to go to the areas of non-consumption because uh, it, it's, it's not where, quote unquote, the problem is. And experts love to focus on the problem. The real counterintuitive insight of disruptive innovation is to go to all those other areas that aren't being served, that maybe aren't seen as core, and that the public schools would be, great, thank gosh you're doing that, right? Um and really rely and find that asymmetric motivation is is the critical insight. And, and you've obviously had a show on this, but you know, in many ways, I always think of disruptive innovation as game theory, right? It's basically saying, where do I go that uh, the folks that I'm trying to replace or the paradigm I'm trying to change will say, great, you go have that. And then I plot my next move with the same thing in mind, where are they going to then say, yep, you can have that one too. I'm really tempted to continue on Jobs to be Done. Jobs to be Done is one of the core elements of that was Bob Mesta, your friend and co-author as well of your book, Blended. We'll come back to Jobs to be Done. I think in the sequence of how we're talking and for the benefit of our audience, the next place to go would be cramming because we've talked about Kim Clark's architecture, for example. We've talked about the theory of interdependence and modularity. And one of the things that happens when the tectonic plates of disruption recalibrate the landscape in business or education is that all of a sudden things change and you have not only a business model but a mental model and it's you try to square peg that new model or your existing model into the new paradigm into the round hole and it just doesn't work so maybe you'll take us through cramming and how it impacts the education system yeah you bet and it's related to the phenomenon we were just talking about, right, which is when you don't target non-consumption and you go to the core, you end up implementing the new technology layered over the top. And, and that can be fine. It can be an important, what I would call hybrid phase, right? We have this theory of hybrids we sort of developed uh, with Clay, where we often see this. The, the industry leaders take the new innovation and they layer it on top and they get some incremental improvements, but it doesn't fundamentally change the paradigm. They don't get those new value propositions for which they're looking. And so in the case of education, for example, digital learning, it's a great incremental asset on top of a traditional classroom, but it doesn't fundamentally break that interdependence around time that we were talking about earlier. Aiden and I, you and I, right, we can't learn at different rates, at different paces and pathways because we're still stuck in the paradigm of we've got, say, 180 days. We have to learn these things in this order. Uh, and even if you haven't mastered it too bad, we're all going to move on because it's at the teacher's pace, not the student's pace and on and on. 
Whereas if you find the areas of non-consumption instead of cramming and introduce digital learning uh, as that disruptive innovation, then you can say, well, you know, you need a little bit more time on this until you show mastery and mastery becomes the new unit or a currency. It's just very hard to do that when you're cramming in a system that is funded based on minutes and seats. It's funded based on enrollment. It's funded based on attendance. It is, uh, the curriculum is intricately built around ages and grade levels all around time. Everything is around time in the traditional system. And so when you cram on top of it, you get that incremental improvement. Maybe you even frankly get the existing system say, no, thanks. We don't need that. We don't see value to it because it doesn't help us uh, improve on these time-based things. And so they throw it out completely. But either way, in either versions of those, you're not getting the fundamental transformation, right, of which we hope. And that could be around affordability, convenience, customization, simplicity, or in the case of schools, customization to unlock every child's learning. You're just not going to get that because you're trapped by the current paradigm, by the business model, if you will, the resources, the processes, and the uh, priorities or, or, or revenue formula uh, of the existing system. Our very first guest on the very first innovation show six, seven years ago was Seth Godin. And we talked about Meatball Sunday because I, I worked in digital media. My first role after professional rugby was digital media. And I saw cramming firsthand. And I read Meatball Sunday. And essentially, it's like you have this core component, meatballs, and then you try to put a bit of whipped cream and some sprinkles on top. And you kind of go, ta-da, we have a brand new product. And I was like, that's cramming. <laughs> it's a great, it's it's a more fun version of cramming. But there's a quote, 100%. There's a quote I wanted to share from the book. It requires a disciplined management team that has taken the right courses in the school of experience to avoid attempting to modify the innovation to go after the biggest market. That discipline is necessary for ultimate success. Attempts to cram a disruptive innovation into a large existing market almost never work. Customers tend to reject the innovation. The industry leaders are very motivated to stave off the attack and they have the resources and the skills to do so. In the book, you say histories of Nipro, an injection injection molding firm, Merrill Lynch, an investment management company, and RCA, an electronics firm, illustrate this problem and show how a manager can solve it. I'd love if uh, the reason I read all those examples are they're brilliant examples of the book. But I'd love if you'd share one that your your favorite, perhaps out of those that will illustrate this point. Oh gosh, I love them all, but I'll do the RCA one because the disruptive innovation, if you there, if you will, there was the transistor. So RCA's products were powered by vacuum tubes about the size of your fist. They blew up every once in a while and you'd have to replace them, but they enabled unbelievable technological marvels of the time, floor standing televisions, tabletop radios, and so forth. And in 1947, Bell Labs invents the uh, transistor, first foray into solid state electronics much more durable, smaller, enables smaller devices, but can't handle the power that RCA's devices uh, required to be able to get high fidelity images or, or high fidelity sound and so forth. And so RCA sees the transistor. They 
cram it into their existing model. They do a ton of research and development on it. And like the meatball Sunday you just described, they're basically framing it as a technology problem. Can we just make this good enough that we'll swap it in for those vacuum tubes? You know, you and I will have no idea the difference. And so we'll just merrily go on buying RCA products. And the problem is the technology hurdle as it existed at that time was so high that despite investing adjusted for today, probably, you know, a couple billion dollars on the problem, they just could never make it good enough that they would swap that in. Even today, frankly, vacuum tubes still outperform uh, transistors on those power dimensions, right? Vacuum tubes are still used in military applications and the like for that reason. Uh, but the transistor did disrupt the world, right? Sony came along and introduced it in the transistor pocket radios and uh, small, initially black and white uh, televisions that weren't as good, but they're more affordable, easier to buy. They're smaller, so they fit in small apartments, on and on and on, get better and better and better. And at some point in the late 1960s, everyone says, well, that's good enough. <laughs> I'll take the more affordable, more you know, durable don't have to replace the vacuum tube product and and make the switch. And, and what's so punishing about it is RCA saw the transistor way before Sony did. They spent more money perfecting the transistor than Sony ever did. And yet Sony got to live to tell about it and RCA did not because they tried to cram it in. And you could imagine a world in which maybe it would have been that meatball Sunday. You, they would have said, have the best of both worlds, a vacuum tube plus a transistor right product of, or, or some amalgamation thereof. And you know, maybe a transistor would have helped with some switch or something like that on top of an image. But ultimately, it would have been clear because you were cramming it in the long run trajectory. You might have extended your shelf life a little bit, but the pure play disruption was ultimately going to win. And cramming just doesn't allow you to make that leap. It's funny because that's what happened in in digital media was that you know the the digital first person got fr frustrated and leaves the organization and goes and joins Google or some digital first organization, and the incumbent used to bundle the analog and the digital and often offered the digital for free. And all they were doing was burning the furniture of their future to fuel the house of the present. And as a result, disruption comes, you know, so it, it plays out that way the whole time. And it links nicely to something that Cl Clark Gilbert talked about us recently about for him, for example, in the Deseret media, he had to build an independent autonomous vehicle in order to manage the future. And that had to be managed viciously by the senior management and leadership within the organization. You talk about this as well, and it speaks again to Kim Clark's work about the structure. And you dedicate a chapter to this called Incubation Outside the Core. And I pulled a quote that says, businesses that survive disruption do so by creating a new business unit under the corporate umbrella with a new business model attuned to the disruptive value proposition. So it's not a meatball Sunday. It's doing what we talked about. It's a reconfiguration of the entire architecture Inter the theory of interdependence and modularity comes into play is here. So this brings together lots of the lenses that we talked about. I'd love you to share your thoughts on this and then what happens in the education system. Yeah, so uh, look, I think it's been written about and shown in so many fields and by so many different scholars, not just within the disruptive innovation body of work, 
but that organizations are built for what they're built to do. And they, by definition, are not built to do a whole bunch of other things that are outside their core competency, if you will. Um, probably the wrong word, but you, you, you get the drift. And uh, as a result of that, if you want to catch the disruptive innovation, if you're RCA and you see the transistor come along, maybe you use it in an incremental way in your core, but you also better set up a new organization, a new business model that has the freedom to rethink the value proposition, the resources we use, the processes we're going to use to get it done, and then the profit formula itself. Otherwise, we're not going to make that leap. And that's essentially what you know Clark did uh, and has written a ton about in Dual Transformation and, and in his doctoral thesis and so forth is the importance of autonomy. And it's the case here as well in schools that if you really want to overthrow the elements of the paradigm that are not working for kids, that are not creating that intrinsically motivating experience, then as the disruptive innovation, in this case, digital learning comes along, you have to aggressively create these autonomous areas, starting with the non-consumption, where you have the freedom to rethink all parts of the model that are critical to unleashing this. And so in, in the book, we talk a lot about these areas that I've mentioned, right? Courses that you can't offer and so forth. But I will tell you, I've, I've, I've come to think over the years that we have to be even more aggressive with the autonomy because of this problem I mentioned earlier, which is that it's still within a system that will exert its control. And so as a result of that, you know, and from reopen to reinvent, I'm advocating schools start schools within schools or micro schools or things completely outside the system as ways to get more freedom from the from the traditional processes and revenue formula and accountability metrics that maybe uh, are the wrong metrics uh, to to unleash student learning, and that you have to have this freedom. Otherwise, you know, you 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 do what we see, which is in formal schools we have lots of digital learning, but I don't think a lot. I, I don't think students' lives are getting a lot better <laughs> as a result of that because they haven't created that necessary autonomy. And frankly, that's on policymakers as well in the public systems, right? That means you have to create new areas where you have the freedom to rethink how these entities are funded, uh, what the metrics that they are responding to is, and not hold them to account for the way they organize the resources and processes to try to mirror the existing system, but instead give them the freedom to truly rethink it. Otherwise, you're just replicating what you already have. Yeah, and this speaks to something that you talk about a lot. And we've talked about recently with Ron Adner is that the reason, for example, Sony versus RCA succeeded was because they looked at the ecosystem. And Clay talked a lot about the value network this is an important ter ter term to understand in order to get a, f a holistic picture of what you're talking about here. The, the way I always think about it is systems disrupt systems. It's rarely one point solution that makes the disruption, right? And so in the, let's go back to the RCA story. It's a very useful one. Uh, RCA uh, didn't just exist as a standalone supplier that magically put TVs in your house. They had a bunch of component suppliers that uh, fueled them, people that made the vacuum tubes and the like, and then, or the components rather within them. And then they sold them through appliance stores that made their money or their profit, not just by, not, not by selling the products, but by repairing them when the vacuum tubes blew out in the after service market. And in effect, Sony, when they came along, they took their products to those appliance stores and said, hey, 
look what we just built. Will you sell it? And they'd say, no, because there's no after service to be done. We can't make a profit on this thing. Well, fortunately for Sony in 1962, Kmart, Walmart, and Target were all birthed. And so they had a channel now that worked with them. And obviously they had very different component suppliers to uh, uh, build the products. And as a result, a whole new value network, a whole new ecosystem disruptively replaced uh, the ecosystem that was in place before. And so I, I think this is an incredibly important uh, point. And again, it speaks to the challenges to innovate in an install base uh, or in an existing system because you don't have the freedom to rethink all of those interdependent parts that are so critical uh, to, to, to overhauling and transforming the system. My my uh, uh, friend at, at the Christensen Institute, Tom Arnett, has done a lot of writing lately on this particular point. And as he says, you know, if you think about the ecosystem of schools, you've got parents, school boards, principals, teachers, unions, curriculum company, I mean, on and on and on. It's a morass of people who have different expectations and different things that have sort of worked together in this awkward, somewhat balanced truce in the current system that delicately hangs in balance. And then if you think of a disruptive innovation coming along that totally changes all those things, well, it literally doesn't fit within that system. And so you need a new system to introduce it in that disruptively replaces uh, that system ultimately if you want full transformation. And your book as well, Reopen to Reinvent, does the same thing. I loved. So Michael talks about this. We've covered it on the show, but it's a really great read because we only touched the tip of the iceberg with it. But the whole idea of what COVID did, COVID was really like a disruptive innovation. It, it recalibrated the landscape, but it also was a unique opportunity to reinvent. And whether it happens or not, we don't know. But one of the things I thought we'd mention that is really important to all this. And again, we've talked about this on this series is the importance of regulation. Regulation can totally usurp an entire industry, the ecosystem, open it up to competition, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought about what you were saying there about Apple, for example. And recently in Europe, they've put in regulation in the EU that you have to have a, a common mobile charger and Apple weren't very happy about this because one of the, like you said, Apple or Apple had mod, had interdependent pieces. And one of the things that with Apples are a good Apple charger will charge quicker than a, in a generic one. And Apple weren't happy about that at all. So there was this kind of resistance, but they were forced to change because of regulation. And I pulled a quote that will speak to so many of the change makers who listen to this show because you can replace insert the word here for your business or for some colleagues and get a load of this. So this is from Disrupting Class. Untold numbers of school reformers and philanthropists have bloodied themselves by bashing the barriers that bar change in the existing system. Changing the textbook adoption process, confronting the demand for standardization and countering the power of teachers unions are just three of a litany of factors that have rendered a change a seemingly hopeless cause for many. And yet disruptive change has swept through many other heavily re regulated and unionized industries. How did this happen? Never did success come through a head on attack against the regulations and network effects that constituted the power of the status quo. Rather, the disruption prospered in a completely independent value network outside the reach of regulators. 
I thought that was a nice way to bring together everything we've talked about today. And maybe you have some thoughts on it. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire book, because I think it's the thing that's most true uh, in the book. And uh, despite some of the optimism that I've suggested we weren't right about, that's where I'm like, okay, but we, we, we got the headline right, because that's exactly what's happened, is that as people have tried to implement disruptive innovations in the existing system and change regulations, all of the powers of the status quo predictably come in and eat it right? And they, they push back or they twist and turn the thing to meet its needs as opposed to the needs that you're designing for and so forth. And so it, again, speaks to this need for autonomy and going around the regulations. And, and that's where you see transformational change occur. You know, Southwest Airlines in the United States and the introduction of discount air. I don't know the history of Ryanair in Europe, but I suspect it's similar it started uh, in, in the U.S., Southwest, by flying routes within Texas, not crossing states. So it didn't get into the FAA. Uh, it, it was a different agency then. But the, re the regulations that governed interstate travel that it wouldn't have been able to comply with. And then it got better and better and better, got its own set of resources, and then could lobby for the deregulation of the airline industry and change the, uh, and, and change the nature of the game. Uh, and you see that over and over again, the need to go outside of the regulations. And so I, when I look again, we talked about YouTube or TikTok or something like that. They're helping people learn and they are not trying to change any of the regulations within, within school. Now, granted, we don't yet know how to certify or accredit learning. And if they're truly to get better and be a replacement, ultimately, they're going to have to figure out how to do that so that employers and society knows how to value what students are getting or what individuals are getting from those things. That's the upmarket improvement they'll have to grapple with. But they're not going to have to grapple with changing any of the regulations. They're just going around them themselves. Or you look again at the advent now from COVID of micro schools everywhere. This was a phenomenon that existed before, was heavily in the UK, for example, and somewhat in the US, but is now much more widespread. And it's just families saying, heck with this, we're done, right? Educators saying, heck with this, we're done, we're outside the system now. And that outside the system, going around the regulations, the freedom just to say, we're going to check the box on the one thing we need to, and then we have complete discretion to redesign, uh, is critical if you're really going to reinvent uh, uh, something and, and transform it in the ways that we're trying to, that we're talking about here. And, and that's how disruptors, uh, follow, right. That they, they go around the regulations. And, and so the advice, obviously Apple's no longer a disruptor in that space. <laughs> They're the incumbent, uh, playing that game, but as new entrants come in and rethink devices and so forth, just finding ways to get around the regulation rather than them thinking that they can somehow get the EU uh, to change uh, some regulation on them. That, you know, that's a fool's errand, right? It's just not going to happen when you're a startup and you have no resources or no way to play the game uh, and you're not plugged into what's going on in the power structures. Just go outside and create your own structure that doesn't sit within it at all. I love that. I love that. I'll speak nicely to so many of our audience as well as like ask for forgiveness, not permission. W but that doesn't work, though, if you're trying to build innovation engine within an organization, because you're just kicking the can down the road, you got to structure it differently, as we've talked about here. But building on that, I, I thought we'd mentioned I earlier on, I planted the seed for jobs to be done. And you mentioned you going out to Sierra, Sierra Leone and how it's a blank space. It's a white space of opportunity. But I thought about a brilliant story you 
mention in the book that is really about jobs to be done. And maybe you'll use, we'll use this as a way to, for you to give your version of jobs to be done was the Grameen phone. Because I thought about how this is really a story of privilege as well, because you see the job that a phone does for you very, very different than a farmer might see that phone's job in Bangladesh. And it did provide a vastly different experience and opportunity for a farmer in Bangladesh than it did for us. Because for us, like you were saying, the the education system is in existence for a very long time. But somewhere like Sierra Leone, there's a huge opportunity to build one that's fit for the present state of the ecosystem. Yeah, and it's an incredibly important lesson, right? Because that phone in Bangladesh is serving just to get you real-time information on what prices is and help you set crops and so forth. Whereas in the US, we're using it for all sorts of entertainment purposes and the like. It's a totally different job, architecture. Things that you thought were absolutely imperative in the US are not so important in Bangladesh. You can get huge cost savings and price savings as a result of that. And things that you think are not that important in the U.S. become incredibly important, right, uh, in, in in Bangladesh. And so it speaks to the idea, if you really understand the job to be done, the functional, emotional, social dimensions of progress that someone's trying to make in a struggling moment, then it helps you understand what experiences are important and what experiences are actually not that important. And then you can say, okay, how do we construct that and integrate it in a way that accomplishes all those uh all those hiring criteria, if you will. And uh, I, I think that's the critical thing is we're, we're, we're often solving for different problems and people in the US say, well, we couldn't possibly do without X. Well, if you try to impose that system in Sierra Leone, it's likely to be way too costly and expensive for the government to maintain, which I think is why you see, frankly, you know, schools with absenteeism of teachers and 200 to 1 ratios and things like that that just don't function. But if you say, what's the real job for you know, society there? And it might be around economic mobility or, you know, and it might be more of an agrarian, you know, you look at Malawi or something like that, more of an agrarian economy. Let's build a school system that helps families advanced in that context with the technology we now have today. What would that look like? Well, it's going to look extraordinarily different. Um, and I think that's a big problem that we often make, frankly, when we try to go into those markets is we, we think, well, they have to have a university system that looks like ours. Well, no, they don't because there's no jobs that require those things. Let's, let's build something that works for its people and its economy and its circumstance and the job to be done, the struggling moments that they have and the progress they want to make and unleash from there and let them go on their journey of development, which ideally and, and hopefully will look very different from ours so that they create something that is uh, much more in line with what we now know around how to progress learning more generally than when we built this albatross of an education system originally. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, when you think about jobs to be done, you think about the education system in its origin was done, the job to be done was to teach people to be quiet or, for example, sports. So rugby, for example, in the UK and Ireland, was actually introduced by the army to get people to be disciplined beyond school and teach them teamwork and how to work together, etc. And then it became a sport eventually. So when you think through the jobs lens, you see the thing totally different. And then, as you say, you can open up ideas for innovation as well. 
I thought the last thing we talk about is probably the most important, and it's something that crops up a lot in Clay's work, and for me, it doesn't get enough attention. And we've touched on it here, which is the whole idea of democratizing the lenses, let everybody understand the lenses. And one thing that I noticed in Clay's work, and you mentioned about this, him being so interested in people's progress and people's balance in their lives, etc., and what how they were doing personally. The way I thought I'd introduce this is this beautiful story that I once heard that is, if you walk into a kitchen and the kitchen sink is overflowing, do you grab a mop or do you turn off the tap? And I really felt with, with this book, and when you talk about education itself, you kind of go, well, what if, for example, we educated children in a right way, made them love learning before in kindergarten. That's one stage. And then what if in high school, we taught people how to be good, responsible parents in the future. So you're getting ahead of the disruption. So it never actually happens in the first place. You're having a butterfly effect moment to be able to change that. And, and it mirrors exactly what happens in innovation is to get ahead of it means you don't have to encounter it. But that takes a whole, whole different mindset to be able to do that. And it takes commitment and it takes a different lens. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, you know, obviously the the big question we had in the book was if you helped expose individuals to what their babies were going to need, right? <laughs> that you could dramatically change the footing on which they come into school and are prepared for their learning experiences much, much earlier, but it's not something that is popularly understood in many communities. You know, the, the language dancing, if you will, that occurs and, and, and the importance of interaction, not about transactional things, but about, you know, you just musing out loud <laughs> to, to your child who doesn't even speak yet. And yet all these neurons are firing and synapses connecting and growing and so forth that, um, really spurs development and creates a fertile ground for future learning in incredible ways. And so I think that's what you're, you, you have in mind. And, and the question we ask is, well, where and how can you get that information more widespread? Is it something, this isn't what we wrote in the book, but is, is there, you know, I, I believe there's a huge intersection as I, I know you do between health and education that, that wellness uh, is really the culmination of, of, of uh, this broader thinking of fitness and health and education all coming together. And how do we get ahead of that? Because if we can teach us to be better parents and families, um, I, I, that, that probably gets a lot of the work done because as, as, as a friend of mine has repeatedly told me, only 13% of a child's waking hours are in school. So that leaves, you know, some 87% of their time elsewhere. And a lot of that is in the families. And if we can get that better, then we can help a heck of a lot more people make progress in their lives. Beautiful, man. I, I have one quote that I, I picked. It was difficult to pick a quote that would encapsulate what your goals were with this book. And I'm going to share that quote and love you to then add your your, where you are today, because your work has evolved a lot since you wrote this book with Clay and indeed, and in the field, you work as a consultant, you work with many different organizations, and you drive the change. So I'm going to share that quote. And then I'd love you to unpack that and then maybe share your final words on Clay before we wrap up. So the quote I picked is as follows. 
There is power in our communities to affect change. By disrupting the classroom as we now know it, we can break apart the fundamental obstacles with which educators, parents, and students have struggled for so many years. These technologies and organizational innovations are not threats. They are exciting opportunities to make learning intrinsically motivating, to make teaching professionally rewarding, and to transform our schools from being economic and political liabilities to sources of solutions and strength. I believe that more now than when I think I wrote it then, uh, because I've seen the power of families awakened during COVID and educators awakened during COVID to saying, why does school work this way? Do we need to settle for this? They saw Zoom school come in through their living rooms and they said, no, uh uh-uh. Or educators said, why can't, why do I think that serving this child in this parent circumstance, you know, is, is the same as serving this one in a completely different circumstance with a one size fits all offering? Uh Uh-uh. We're going to create something new. And so I think the power of communities to come together and think through those first principles of why are we here? What's the purpose? And create something much more robust around individual progress. Uh, I think we see way more of that today than we saw when Disrupting Class was written. And frankly, I think that's what gives me hope in many cases for this is that these communities don't have to settle for the way it's always been, that they can take an active standpoint and that they have a language and a set of tools to help them create these innovations, whether it's the work that Kim Clark did to create the right team and the right structure uh, to innovate, whether it's the work that Clark Gilbert did around the importance of threat rigidity and autonomy, whether it's the importance of disruptive innovation and the digital learning advances we see, whether it's the importance of interdependence and modularity and creating the right customization points. There are ways to get what individual families and communities now need. And I think it's a huge opportunity that I hope many, many more people don't just say, set it and forget it. They lean in and say, we can do better. We can innovate together. Beautiful, man. That's a beautiful way to bring so many of the theories together. And I I just before I ask you about your final word on clay, I just want to remind people you can see them behind there, Michael beautifully lined up his four books disrupting class this one that we've covered today, choosing college, reopen to reinvent, which is magnificent read It's behind me there on the shelf as well. And of course, blended, which he co authored with his friend, and our guest on the future guest on the show, Bob Mesta. Michael, where can people find you before you share your final words on Clay? Yeah, sure. I, look, I'm, I, I write a Substack newsletter, The Future of Education. I'm on uh, YouTube under the same. Uh, I am on Twitter at Michael B. Horn. You can jump on my website at michaelbhorn.com. The reason for the B is if you just Google Michael Horn, you'll find someone who loves UFOs. Maybe the UFOs are great, but that's not me. So, so remember the B. But the uh, and then uh, you can check out any of my podcasts, uh, Future You or Class Disrupted. Future You is focused on the future of higher education and, and workforce uh, development, and Class Disrupted is focused on the K twelve uh, system. And so, any of those avenues are great ways to keep up with me. And your co-authored children's book as well with your wife. Yes. Good night, Box. Uh, my wife and I wrote that because we want more role models and opportunities for our kids to learn how to move well and to live not just healthy lives, but lives focused on wellness.
And your final word on Clay, man, before we finish up. You know, I, I got to teach my first class at the Harvard Graduate School of Education uh, this past fall. And one of my students at the end, my wife and I took them the whole class out to dinner. It was it was wonderful. And um, one of my students said, uh, Michael, you mentioned Clay uh, on, on the first day, and I didn't know who he was. So I looked him up and looked like a cool dude. <laughs> And then you mentioned him at least three times in every class thereafter. <laughs> and um, But it doesn't feel like you or any of his, the people that worked with him are teaching in his shadow, but that instead you are, uh, in, in effect, expressions of his light, right? Spreading these theories to others. And, and um, I think that's what Clay wanted, right? He, he wanted people not to think about him or, or to think about the individual, but to see the power of the theory to improve their lives. And um, that's what he was ultimately after. And he was the most gracious, incredible teacher. And so if I, if I do a 10th of what he did, then uh, gosh, I'll take that. <laughs> it's always a huge pleasure. Author of Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns. Michael Horn, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate are specialists in buying, selling, and managing property in the German market. They're based in Berlin, and they are English-speaking investor specialists. You can find them at next-estate.de or next-estate.com.